This is the Director's Podcast with Jeff T. Thomas, Part 2. Jumping into our uh, second part uh, of the show. So let's talk about your process a little bit and how your process is different today to how it was when you did Hard Candy. Yes, okay. It's still fundamentally the same in that I have about three phases that I go through when I'm preparing Mm -hmm. for a project. The first and the best is the dreaming process where you sit quietly with your eyes closed and you dream the film which means that um, you kind of project a little mini movie on the inside of your head and you watch it very carefully and very patiently and you try and remember it and it doesn't all come at once it's not like you don't sit there for two hours and you know although Mm -hmm. I have done that um but in little fragments here and there, and you write them down. You, and the most important thing I find at that point is to be inspired and be enjoying it. Yeah. Because at a certain point, there are deadlines, and you have to be prepared for this day because you're going in to shoot, and you can't put it off anymore and procrastinate. You have to do the work. Hmm. And for me, doing the work means being prepared. And everybody says, you know, best thing to do is be prepared and it, it is but what does that mean per person to person well to me it's about this I feel like I do have the perfect version of what I want to say in my mm-hmm. head mm-hmm. it is not entirely immune to being better mm-hmm. the moment in fact it comes into contact with the world and other people who have better ideas interact with it it will become better mm-hmm. But I have a place to start, and I'm very clear about that. And so what I'll do is I'll make notes, and I'll start to write things down, and then eventually I'll do storyboards. And sometimes I'll do storyboards immediately, you know. Mm -hmm. There might be an idea for a sequence that just comes in images, so I'll just draw them out pretty quickly. Or sometimes it's a character thing where you're trying to figure out how to make a big safe space in which an actor can fill Mm -hmm. that character. Mm -hmm. Um, And so essentially that's stage one is the dreaming stage. Stage two is just really documenting that stage so that you can communicate and speak about it with Mm -hmm. people. Mm Um, the you know the first part of that might be phone calls where you're describing things to people and, and talking about the um, potential, of mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then the third part, of course, is the doing it. And the doing it is 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 this other process again, another journey in and itself, where you have to kind of merge with the world and and you take it out of that existential place and put it into the actual. Mm-hmm. And everything dissolves when it comes into the actual. Mm-hmm. Everything disappears and transforms into something else. Mm-hmm. And so often that that becomes, that's the joy of it to me, is the seeing it all working together at the very end is the third part of it. So, you know, and that sounds quite abstract, and it is, but that process has been the same for me 
um, from the beginning, what has changed for me is my ability to do all of it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so, for instance, the more you understand about the camera or whatever technical aspects of the cinematic process, the more you can challenge the people who do that yeah. to do a really good job for you and give you what you want. And it's not about, it is about having a very clear picture of exactly what you want and going to get it. But there's also have, not having too much insecurity about that so that you can recognize um, the life in it if there's something better to be had and adjust and I think that's the difference is the, the ability to adjust and find something stronger mm -hmm. and better without compromising the vision. At the very beginning of your career, I think often the battle becomes you've got this idea that's so big that it fills the sky mm -hmm. and you end up with a tiny canvas mm -hmm. because all of the different processes that go into the existential meeting, the actual, the thing being made, take away from it because you perhaps didn't have the experience to understand that that thing that you didn't prepare for, you prepared thinking of one thing and then something else happened, would take away from the time you would have to shoot it. It's always time. So how different money, do you right? think it is from that dreaming moment to the process moment? When, when you're on set and you're looking at the picture, how, like, I, I do something similar, but I, mm -hmm. I, I look at it as a scene and sure, there might be certain shots that come up and I'll write those on the script or in my mm -hmm. notes or something. But how mm -hmm. different, you know, obviously when you're looking at locations, you know, it evolves then and it evolves when you're talking yes. about lighting and you're talking yeah. about sound yeah. and there yeah. might be a train track next to you and you go, I can use that for tension or something. So yes. how different is it from the moment you imagine it to the moment that you're actually shooting it and processing it on set? Oh, it's completely different. It, right. it, it couldn't be more different. But that's not, doesn't mean it's worse. It just means it's different uh, yeah. in the way that, you know, swimming and walking are different. Is it uh, better or is it just different? It's different. Right. Uh, it's just different. And, and, and um, I think in terms of the perceptual difference to me now to then, say, from Hard Candy Prep. And I prepared really, really extensively for Hard Candy Do you storyboard yourself, or do you, you work with a storyboard artist? I work with a storyboard artist whenever I can, but my uh, belief in storyboards is they should be as shit as possible <laughs> because you're not presenting storyboards. Storyboards are a map to get you through. So yeah. I can draw pretty badly, and I could draw really badly then, and I would <laughs> do... I would just, if I could get a friend or somebody at Hard Candy Stage who didn't have any money, I got a couple of people to help me do storyboards as favors uh, for important scenes where I just, I, I either I couldn't draw anymore or I was, it just was really important that mm -hmm. the storyboard be clearer than I could draw. Would you storyboard, um, you know, like a, a conversation between two people? No, probably not. Right. Um, what I would do is I would... Um, that's a different thing. Um, the, the C. So it's more me, like the, the the single shots or the it's, it's anything that has it's a something tonal that captures the tone. Yeah, it's a right. tone thing. You see, the closest thing I can describe to what I think my genre is mm -hmm. is probably somewhere in that Paul Schrader book about transcendental style. 
it is this idea that um, everything feeds into the film, and tone is equally important to pace and not as not to story. Story and character are paramount, but you can tell a story and see it in your head, and a good story will always be good if you if you. Got the mental capacity to imagine it, but cinematic language is what creates a movie, mm-hmm. and that is all of the elements to create something that burns itself into your mind and mm-hmm. your emotional palate. And that is something that comes in every different direction. As the older I get, the more experience I have, and the clearer I have, the closer I get to making. The thing that I want in my head, you know, the, the easier it gets from taking the thing out of the existential and into the actual, mm-hmm. um, the better it will be for me, um, mm-hmm. because I get a feeling, and it's this feeling in my chest, somewhere in my heart, and it's a feeling of being alive. That's pretty much why I do it mm-hmm. these days. I've got to be honest, you know, mm-hmm. that's the I do it because it makes me feel alive, yeah. and so. Um, the quicker it gets to feeling alive, the more success I kind of attribute to the process, right? So, yeah. um, so you go through knowledge and gaining knowledge. Some of it's technical, but the other thing might be, for example, just human communication. Your yeah. ability to put people at ease. Your ability to connect with somebody. Well, has that? Yeah, that's true. Has has that been something that's changed from hard yes. candy through to absolutely. today? I mean, it must have drastically absolutely. because you've shot drastically. so much yeah. more well, stuff you know, now. At the time of hard candy, there's still a degree of insecurity that comes from knowing that I have this incredibly powerful thing in my head, mm-hmm. but not knowing whether or not it'll all get there. Yeah. Now, I feel like I can get it there. So, let's talk about um, how you work with actors. Um, the process of um, working with actors is the thing that matures with your age and your yeah. ability as a human communicator. You know, and for the one thing, it's good to be able to be understood. It's better to be able to understand, right? So, right. part of it is understanding and being able to. Immediately communicate that understanding so that the person understands. Understanding,、mm-hmm. I think, communication, understanding are the two most important skills for a director. I believe beyond、yeah. all the technical stuff. Yeah, you know. Yeah, you're right. If you don't understand someone, and I think that's more important than being understood to some degree.、Yeah. If you don't understand somebody when they say something, then you're going to be Shaking hands and looking like you're getting on, and then walking away in completely different directions, rather、yeah. than walking together.、Yeah. And so, what I I say is that I'm looking for the thing I say I'm looking for when I'm in all aspects of cinema, in all aspects of cinema,、um, is life. Because I don't know what else, what other word encapsulates all of it.、Mm-hmm. So when you're in a shot and、um, All of the elements are working together in the composition. Then it feels really alive, so that works. But when a character is in the moment, and 
it's just flowing through them, mm -hmm. then that's also alive. So what you're trying mm -hmm. to do is make as much of it alive as you possibly can. And what you're looking for, I would call truth. Because mm -hmm. truth isn't always a thing that is obvious, right? You go mm -hmm. into a scene with a complete understanding of a scene, and then you discover something in rehearsal, yeah. say, yeah. or yeah. somewhere. And then, well, there's a vector. You can either go left or right, or you can ignore it completely and just carry on with the plan. Yeah. And so every instance of it is different. And the hope is you create enough space for everything to be resonating, right? Everything's vibrating. Yeah. You know, everything's alive when you're in that moment. And it's that moment that my heart goes, woohoo! Yeah. <laughs> if, 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 you've got, you know. if you've got five people in the scene and one of the actors just isn't quite getting yeah. there, if they're not feeling the moment, what, what, what would you That's do? That's a hard one. You, you, yeah. try not to, you try not to do that, obviously. Yeah. Um, you know, um, it's a difficult one because, you know, if, if at that point, I think it's, casting is kind of an all or nothing thing, really. It, it, it's something that, because I haven't done a ton of television where I've been given people, I've been able to choose. Yeah. It's a hard one when, um, you know, three of the people are absolutely alive and one of them isn't quite engaging. Yeah. And then what you do is usually uh, quietly and with as much respect as possible, talk and figure out what's going on and figure out how you can help if you can help. Do you, do you talk in, in front of those other actors? Or no, never. So, no, so you, you never do that. Yeah. No, you just, you, just um, you know, what I'll do is I'll wait for a moment and I'll say, oh, you know, just come for a walk with me for one minute. Yeah. And we'll go for a little walk and we'll walk around the set or wherever and, we'll just, and I'll just ask questions about, just to try and get a sense of it. That's and fascinating. then engage the person and really engage that person to solve the problem on their own. Yeah. And make suggestions, but don't give commands until they ask you. And often after, they'll say, you know, well, what do you want me to do? Yeah. What is it? Yeah. And then you, then well, then you, they've given now and they've given you permission to. And if it's going to work, maybe that maybe that's a way to go. But usually, it usually doesn't come to that. I, 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 I learned that I was doing a scene um, with Matt Dillon and Melissa Leo and Toby Jones, you know, three amazing wow. actors. Three amazing um, but complicated people as well. I mean, I've, the, I've the, met a couple, I've met a couple yeah, of those people. A couple of the most complicated, as, yeah. as you very well yeah. know. And, yeah. um, and it was a long scene. It was like a three-page scene and it was mm -hmm. all dialogue. And, you know, mm -hmm. I, at that point, I didn't really... I was just trying, and the Duffer brothers wrote the episode as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we were just trying to get the scene to work, and mm. Matt wanted to change a few things, and Melissa mm. wanted to change yeah. a few things, and Toby had learned this huge, you know, monologue, and and we were just, and nobody was agreeing, and in the end, right. I had to split everybody up, have a conversation, what yeah, they yeah. wanted to do, and then when I found like I found like Matt wasn't giving giving me what I really wanted at the end, and after I pitched sure. to him several times you know ways of doing that i got toby to push him even more yes. toby was often the, the pushing is that the I way used. to do it yeah. exactly and and i found that mm. was something i really took away from working on that show it, right. it was a big learning experience that, yeah. that moment for me i mean uh, the thing for me the thing for me is is um you know part of 
what you recognize. It's kind of like parenting, isn't it? Really. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's very much so. In a way, yeah. it, it's it's a little bit like you know, you and I have both got young young kids, and and I was I was like, oh wait a minute, this is all very familiar to me. Yeah. <laughs> and being a dad made me, I think, a better director. You know. Yeah. You know, when you when your toddler is rolling around on the floor having a tantrum, you're like, oh wait a minute, I've been here. Before. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> And not, you know, I'm not, you know, that's, that sounds Stay calm, but I'm making a joke. Um, but, uh, so, so you know, actually talk, talking about that, because when, when I did the oath yeah. and I did the pilot of the oath and I remember handing it off to the next director in season one sure. and I, and I felt, I remember saying to one of the writers, I feel like even though the origin of the idea wasn't mine, that mm. you know, it was the seed of the idea belonged to our showrunner and creator Joe, Joe Halpin. I felt very much like the surrogate mother because I yeah, took this sure. thing on and, you know, I, I, it lived within me yeah, for, yeah, you know, yeah. a long, long time. And then I had to give that child across to somebody else. Yeah, yeah. Um, what, what's your feeling when you do a pilot <sighs> to something and you yeah. have to hand it off to somebody else? I don't know. I, I try not to think about it because... I do agree with everything you've just said, and it, it would be too emotionally traumatic for me to give up my child. So yeah. I tried not to think about that shit. <laughs> I just try and block it out. Yeah. I, I'm of the firm belief that, you know, being from the north of England, you don't talk about your feelings. You just ram them down as far as you can and buff them up. <laughs> <laughs> so I, yeah, that I do. Class, uh, yeah, that working class yeah. method yeah. that has worked. Yeah. Um, it, it's all uh, there's um, a phrase that we, we came across, I think I coined it, and I got a t shirt made, which I'll show you at some point. Um, the production designer at the time gave made this t shirt for me. Uh, it was the process of the shitless dog. <laughs> the shitless dog is this great process whereby you have this perfect thing and it's working perfectly, but it's got no bum hole, so. Mm -hmm. The problem is, eventually, it's going to explode and there'll be shit everywhere. But mm -hmm. until that moment it explodes, everything's great. Mm -hmm. And that is the process of the shitless dog. And um, so the shitless dog is what I try. I try and stay pre-explosion. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, I do. I try not to think about that too much. I try and do all the prosaic stuff you know i just write everything down i talk to everyone about it i say this is why we did this this is why we did this there is meaning it's not accidental mm -hmm. um this distance between the camera and the lens it has meaning to me it does certainly yeah and so here is a list of what i call meaning and what i mean by that is that all of these things are just atomized floating things on their own but if you repeat a pattern of, an, I don't know, a 2.8, uh, uh, whatever the millimeter lens, light from behind them, mm -hmm. often enough it becomes a style in most people's eyes. Mm -hmm. So what I'm saying is, well, look, we are going to create a tone. It's not just style. It's not just the look. There is a tonal thing, and it could be the way in which we actors work, or it may be the, the way in which the actors work, or it may be the way in which the light falls, or it may be the way in which the camera moves. And it's most likely all of those things together. But if we repeat these patterns, they have become meaning. And then we unlock mm. the meaning. We go into that meaning. We figure mm -hmm. out what's within it, which mm. happened very much on Hannibal. I think Hannibal was a very successful handover, yeah. where all the episodes... Um, there were a lot of things from the way the act we worked, the actors worked, and that was um, 
you know, there was a certain amount of tongue-in-cheekness, but then also this notion that it wasn't comedy and it wasn't... It was ironic, you know. And there was a certain amount of just kind of buzzing comedy under the surface, but it wasn't outright funny. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was slightly operatic, but it wasn't. So all of that stuff you could list in technical ways and shoot it exactly the same way. But had you not done all of the other processes as well to do with the people and the place and the feeling that you create when you're there on set, mm -hmm. then it probably still wouldn't look the same, right? Mm -hmm. So it is a process of everything. You know, we heard the term from theater mise-en-scene, which is just everything. Hmm. Right, it's the, the simplest way to say it. It's, you, it's all you, of the you, elements together. Do you have any tricks on set that you, you know, some directors like to play music, others like to no, have like two, you know, yeah. no, I've, actors I've, I've, I, talk, you know. I've met that people like that. No, I just, I just try and keep a very relaxed, calm atmosphere on set, and we're very clear. I think you know, again, that that analogy of parenting, to some extent, what the actors are looking for and what the crew are looking for i think is confidence in your in the director yeah oh we're doing something we're doing something worthwhile and this person is leading us to that goal and we'll know yeah. when we get there um that'll be great and we'll get it yeah. and you need that the well, process just... of staggering around in the dark and not finding it is 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 is, is intolerable well they just need to feel confident that you know that um you're going to get what you want and they're not going to look stupid yeah it's like I, but also to know when we have it yes because yeah. that's a really big part of, of of i think it's a really big part of the confidence it's like you know everybody you know uh knows uh, the Kubrickian stories the, the kubrick stories of you know endless endless tapes so that's interesting so you know yeah. as you know fincher does a lot of takes and I watched this. Um, yeah, no, I, I, this, I get this, that as well. This, but but yeah. then you know you talk to Ridley, and mm -hmm. Ridley's like, if you're doing more than six takes, you don't know what you're doing. Which is, yes. you know, well, I think there is what's this. What's your take on takes? Yeah, um, as many takes as it takes, with a very clear idea of what you're looking for. Now, I think what happens if you go beyond that is you start to see other patterns. Yeah. And I think that will happen and that can happen if you're looking really, really closely at things. Oh, I love the way that inflection, that changed some meaning. Why mm -hmm. would we do more of that? Mm -hmm. And yeah, there's times when that's right. But I generally tend to try and not push life around as much as just capture it while it's still vibrating. So um, what I mean by that is I will not, push a scene if the scene's really working i won't just keep doing takes to see if it can get better i'll find other ways to get it to the place where i think is you know where where the nose meets its tail and it kind of seals itself because the alternative to that is the going until you think you've got something really good and then choosing to abandon it at the point at which you've just gone past the best mm -hmm. you think you can get mm -hmm. and that process doesn't work for me because usually that process means it's not working and we're just trying to make it as good as we can because it doesn't fundamentally work so i yeah. prefer to recognize that it's not working for whatever reason and try and attack it from a different direction fair enough yeah i wonder david i i i would often compare i did the show called the assets and I, I found like when we hit our when we hit the perfect moment 
Yeah. I just tried to get all the coverage as I could, you know, mm-hmm. as, as quickly as I could because everybody was just, you know, hitting 10 and doing exactly yeah. what we needed them to yeah. do. And I found that if we went on another six takes, then the life would fall out of it. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. And then it would take another 10 takes in order to get the life back into it again. And I think Fincher has the ability to continue shooting for 30 takes in order to yeah. get that. It's almost like well, waves, right? It's like a yeah. second wave. It's like the, it's like the um, stages of stages of grief, isn't it? Like they go yeah. through the exhaustion yeah. Yeah, and then exactly. they go through the, yeah. then they go through the fuck it. And then they go through the, oh, Jesus, why am I still doing this? And then they go for, <laughs> well, you know what I could do when this could be actually quite good. Oh, I've got a different way. I, I've lost all my connection. And I think probably with Fincher, he's probably trying to just disconnect everyone from which is what the, he does too. Yeah, yeah he's trying yeah, to disconnect right everybody from all of those, um, you know, uh, con- you know, all of those little tethers that are holding them in place, and, yeah. and and get them to go fresh, and that's commendable, and that's really good. I rarely had the time, yeah, and the no, money nobody to be able time. to do that, yeah. you know, because yeah. it's just, a, and that's what Kubrick was doing. I'm sure is is, look, if you've got, I worked with uh, an actor, brilliant actor, um, once in. Puerto Rico and this actor was one of those legends and I remember just him and I just having this candid moment where he's like he's like it's not like a play is it you've got you've got one chance and you're out he's like, mm-hmm. we, can't, we can't go back mm-hmm. and so you know what that didn't work so well why don't we rework it for a while and have a Great. and have a hiatus and then come back and, and put it on again in the evenings and make it really good yeah. we don't get that do we anymore we have to figure out what we have now we just have to you know, and I'm like, yeah, we have to just breathe the air we have and, and and hope it works, you know, by doing everything we can to prepare for it. Yeah, yeah. And That's Malkovich, right? That's Malky, yeah, it's yeah. just Malkovich. Yeah. I used to be able to do a really good John Malkovich impression. So um, let's talk about your process a little bit. So, you know, obviously a lot of people that know your work, I think, honestly, I think a lot of directors will look at it and uh, they won't know... You know how you get there with the uh, the shutter angle and the stop. Yeah, sure. I could give you a list of stuff. Let's yeah. let's just let's just talk a little yeah. bit about that because it is so yeah. distinct and hmm. and yeah. maybe your influences as well. Because I I don't know hmm. if this is with you, but I first started noticing the different shutter angle yeah, uh, sure. when Chris Cunningham came on the scene. Right, and right, right. I used to you know I, I remember he showed me cuts of his music videos and I'd be like, and I would name the thing that it was. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we you all got the it. reference. Yeah, I got there, and he'd be like, he'd be yeah, like, yeah. you bastard. <laughs> um, so how did that? So I know how did reference. that influence, like you know, your eleven degree shutter, and you know, the, I don't think the, it did. I mean, I'd seen the shutter and... stuff. I was interested in at the time I was doing the things with shutter specifically. I was interested in. Um, I'd seen it in the movie Come and See, which is one of the greatest war films ever made, and it's harrowing and horrifying. You shouldn't watch it if you have a weak disposition. Mm-hmm. But they'd used it in that, and it really opened my eyes, and I was like, oh, I was just fine looking for new things, things I hadn't seen before. Yeah. And I was using a lot of high-speed cameras at the time to try and sharpen things. And, and it was also, at the time, I was obsessed with uh, Harold Egerton, the guy, Harold Egerton, who... who invented flash frame photography and took the photographs of nuclear bombs. You've mm-hmm. seen those pictures of the, you know, a millionth of a second exposures. Yeah. So I knew that if you could expose faster, you could get a sharper, cleaner image. And at the same time, I loved 
the um, nostalgia of film. So here, the shutter thing, which suddenly people began to do, and I just saw it and I was like, oh, oh, I can do all the things I'm looking for. And I was doing a series of music videos that were all using, like I, I shot this camera that would shoot at 10,000 frames a second and it didn't have a shutter, it just fired the film, 16 mil only. Mm -hmm. And it was standard 16, not super eight, so the picture quality was awful. <laughs> it would fire the film through the gate at 10,000 frames. Wow. And, and so I was really interested in that stuff because it was these, and again, I think consciously at that point, I understand that what I'm trying to do is take a piece of my subconscious and put it in front of a camera. You can't do that easily with dialogue and scene. It is an existential thing. So I'm trying to make these existential images and music videos are the perfect place to yeah. do that because yeah. everybody just wants an image that'll hold you and stay on MTV. Yeah. Right? That's all it is. It's like, oh, have you seen that thing? Isn't that amazing? Can you see that? How many times can you watch that? Yeah. So things like this, and I would be very clear about the way I'd say, look, I'm trying to create in this sequence images that the human eye doesn't normally see so that it's interesting, right? Yeah. And, so, and the shutter was a thing that did more of that. And there was also something really kinetic about it. And also at the same time, a bit scary because, you know, when insects come at you, all of your defenses, if you're scared of insects, all your defenses kind of go into play. And all of the things you read that come from fear come from the shuttery stutteriness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I always just, uh, just thought it was a really interesting way. And then beyond that, it, I just liked, there was a sharpness and an otherworldliness that made it distinct from the world you see with your eyes, um, if you are most people, but not distinct from the world that I see with my eyes. It was actually much closer to the wo world that I see with my eyes. And, and I guess part of what you do is you you kind of, you know, when you take photographs or whatever, you just show people, you go, here are my eyes. Mm -hmm. If you like what it looks like from out of my eyes, then then you should work with me. And if you don't, then you should work with somebody else. But um, And that's obviously a style that you used um, in Hard Candy and, and even Twilight yeah, movies. Yeah, I mean, with Hard and... Candy, it was about um, anxiety and fear. Mm -hmm. It was about knowing though, the urgency and, and the panic that was there. Um, but, you know, also it is just, also a, just an altered state thing for me. I think when you're in a movie, you're in an altered state. Yeah. And if I'm in, when I'm in a movie and I love it, I'm in an altered state. So I'm just trying to create an altered state. Uh, it worked brilliantly. And, and let's talk about American Gods, actually, because I think sure. that's probably. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, no, I've, I've, I've seen you use um, uh, that style, you know, to great effect in a lot of your work. But I think in, in American Gods, I think that blew a lot yeah. of people away because they hadn't quite seen it used in that well, way. Well, again, again, you know. Uh, without being too samey about what I'm doing, there's a certain truth in my eyes that I'm looking for. I say this, I say that the light shines from where you're standing. So it's a cone of light and it illuminates what you're looking at as a director. If you look at everything, you'll never get it done. So mm -hmm. you narrow it down to what you're looking at mm -hmm. and you dream into it. And then the surface of the image shifts and it changes and it becomes the dream that you're looking for and you find that dream. And so to me, it is less about a stylistic device and more about, again, looking for a truth that I can see, but perhaps other people can't see, but they are gonna see it when it's finished. 
So to some extent, I'm a medium, right? Mm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, I am seeing things that aren't there, but they are. There's a there is a truth to them. What are there? And then I, you know, and then when the film's finished and all of the things are put together, um, you know, it, it becomes apparent. It becomes clear. It walks into the light. So, um, you know, with American Gods, American Oh My Gods. I remember we used to call it uh, <laughs> America. Oh my gods. Um, there was a lot of things that we, uh, interesting enough, it was a difficult, hard set to work on because it was a phantasmagoria of a story. Mm -hmm. And ostensibly, American Gods is a fantasy, but it is also deeply political, particularly now, more now than when it was written. Yeah. And so you have two showrunners and me kind of creating this vision of this thing in which in the opening episode there are at least three deemed unfilmable scenes you mm -hmm. know in it and you know um yet we're doing this literary piece and turning it into a piece of television and it has to work as spectacle but it has to work as a dream too so it's perfect. It's it's everything yeah. that I want yeah. to do. I think it's an incredible uh, show. Uh, I I watched it. I think I binge watched the whole thing on one right. weekend because <laughs> I was I was away shooting something. Yeah. I, was, I was shooting the oath actually, and yes. uh, yeah, the yeah. creator of the oath, uh, Joe, and I would uh, talk about it on set. Oh, wow. We were like, cool. it, it was such the polar opposite of what we were doing, you know. And, yeah. and it was it was one of those things. I don't know if you're like this, but I, I find it hard to watch any television which is similar to the television that you're yeah, shooting yeah. at that time because the yeah. the you know yeah, the realities yeah. get a little blurred so i like yeah. to watch something that's the polar opposite and it it was yeah i, I know I it's interesting isn't it you know I, for me when i'm watching i'm trying to be a fan right i'm not trying to be yeah. a learning machine right that's the thing and, yeah. and it's very rare that i'm watching something going oh that's interesting i should try and see if i can do something with not for any reason other than I am in the headspace of a fan yeah. of it. I want to be a watch fan something. of, of yeah. stuff and enjoy it. Otherwise, you're sitting there being critical and you're, you know. There's always a second viewing if you if you want yeah. to watch it on that level. Yeah, if you want to break yeah. it down afterwards, yeah. try and watch it afterwards. And I tend to, particularly now, I tend to be taking less from cinema and more from other art forms when I'm stealing mm -hmm. from the world. All artists steal, right? That's the, that's yeah. the phrase. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you steal. Didn't you? So do you think we all? I mean, um, reading the Hitchcock Truffaut book. Um, Hitch, oh, right. Yeah, uh, yeah. Truf, there you Truffaut. Go. Truffaut um, yeah. He he attributes a lot of uh, Hitchcock's visual style to the fact that he started um, working in cinema before there was sound. So yes. he had to tell sound. He had to tell stories yeah. through pictures. And yes. don't you think that? People that come from the music video world um, have a certain type of benefit because we had to tell stories through imagery yes. over somebody that started solely in the scripted world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And I don't know about you, in those days in the 90s making music videos, I would spend half my time in the Tashin store, I'd be at the Tate Modern, I would be like right, right, soaking right. up all of that influence, yeah, yeah, yeah. which um, it's funny yeah. when I come here, I even talk to DPs and I'll say, oh, this is like, you know, imagine the scene like a Gregory Cruzden photograph or 
or yeah, Philip sure. Locke, de Cossier, and all the stuff that was common yeah. knowledge in our world. And a lot of people yes. don't know who those artists are. You know, yeah, I think London are. is a culturally is a much more con- concentrated culturally. So yeah, it's all there. I understand the point. Look, you know that 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 if you are when you close when you you know when you close your eyes, your hearing becomes better, right? That's the whole thing. It's like, because your, yeah. your senses overcompensate for one or the other. And if you are, you've had to deal entirely, it's like, do, yeah, for us, it was like doing silent movies. Yeah. Let's just jump onto the next bit. Let's, let's talk about, um, you know, obviously you won an Emmy for Black Mirror's uh, Bandersnatch. Um, right. Uh, this is not the only Black Mirror you did. You've done Breaking Bad, which is you know, one of the mm-hmm. greatest shows of of, yeah. of recent times. Hannibal, American Gods, Baskins. I mean, Twilight, um, mm. Three Day, Thirty Days a Night. What are the most? Just give me like two or three um, most defining moments out of that section of your career. Interestingly enough, I would disagree with most people. Because Metalhead to me was the apotheosis of what I was doing, right? Mm-hmm. I was like able to do and see exactly what I wanted with that movie. It's just you know you're working at the speed of your own you're working at the speed of your own thought process, and it's it's all of that stuff. It is the it is taking a very nuts and bolts story about a chase uh, and making something heavier and existential with it. Um, I also, there was lots of, lots of weird little things, like, you know, one of the characters, you know, the, the, the uh, fourth character in that one, uh, was a robot. And, mm. he, of course, he didn't appear on screen when we were shooting. We had a little maquette. And, um, but again, that was one of those things where, again, all the planning went into it, but it wasn't just nuts and bolts planning. There was an existential tonal nature. Like, for instance, with that one, we could have shot with color cameras, and made it black and white later, but I was really adamant that we use a monochrome sensor. Right. And so our visual effects company, Adineg, hadn't done that before. Don't know whether anybody really had. I'm sure someone had somewhere along the way. But um, and they, you know, they were a bit nervous about it for a while. And they, yeah. you know, we put a bunch of GoPros on one of the camera for a while just to make sure they had tracking marks. But they did. And, and so part of it, it becomes, again, part of the journey is important to me as you're kind of creating a reality by dreaming it all, but also by putting it into practice. It was everything at once. It was darts, it was visual effects, it was run and gun, it was shot fast. It was great acting performances. There was violence, there were prosthetics. There was all the things. Tonally, there was the sound, the music, there was the light of you know yeah that part of the world so yeah it was all just kind of to me that was where it, it was quite optimum it worked really well whereas something like american gods to me where you know it does feel kind of very every frame feels quite polished mm. it was less of a milestone because i kind of didn't get to finish so i'm judging it based on my right. experience of it as much as 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 much as um, you know, the actual act finished result. Well, that's what you walk away with. Personally, uh, it is, but so. it used to be that I believed that when I'm dead and buried and rotting in the ground, this material that I am creating will outlive me. Therefore, it is immortal, and therefore I should 
you know, deem more respect to it. And I still do feel that way. But now I'm understanding of the human dimension of it. Mm -hmm. That without those tiny little micro adjustments along the way, it becomes something else. And, and, and that's certainly somehow I'm alive in it, you know. What was the reason for not shooting it in color and making it black and white afterwards? Were you worried that it might get changed afterwards? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, that was definitely part of it, and I was really clear about that. Yeah. But there is a thing and a methodical nature to me. I believe in, you know, like, you do rehearsals, there's a certain way to do rehearsals, a certain way to do certain things. I like to... Um, what you're trying to do is everybody comes into a film and they're doing it the same way they've done it before, and they're doing it with a certain amount of assumptions. And what you try, what I'm trying to do is go, well, try. let's try and... Not for the sake of it, but just for what we're doing here. Let's try and not do it that way. Yeah, it's great. Let's try and do it a different way. So, like, for instance, one of the things that I will often do is I'll say, look, you know, when we're going, often you've got a, um, you've got a really heavy piece of camera equipment, like a massive techno crane, and you're in a difficult space to work in. Your DP will say, can we put a zoom lens on so that we don't have to rebalance the head, mm. you know, so that you've got all the focal lengths on that zoom lens mm. available to you. And I would, don't do that. I'll say, yeah. nope, we're not going to do that. We're not going to use a zoom. We're going to use primes. Yeah. And I know it's going to add X number of time too, but then there's a discipline we're going through. Yeah, I there's agree. There's a specific yeah. reason for using that prime and that prime. Yeah. And again, it's that repetition of stylistic choices becomes the language. So there are things that I like to do that are almost kind of ritualistic. Mm -hmm. you know existentially ritualistic as well as practical that so one of the things was low if we shoot monochrome we commit to monochrome we think in monochrome yeah if we shoot color and decide we're going to make it monochrome later we won't see it in monochrome until the very end yeah and no we need to start thinking now and also i don't want you charlie brooker <laughs> to say with love <laughs> because i do love him uh, to change your mind and change it later. Yeah, you said, all right then. You know, and I yeah. said it really clearly. I was like, that's you know. Yeah. And it was like it was about three weeks of. <laughs> it's a good. It's a good reason to do it. Yeah. I I love that. But um, I, by that point, I was already you know doing the thing with, you know, anything that was to do with an image had to be you know I just like just make it black and white before you present it. So, so we you, presented a monochrome world. I presented all the locations I was going to shoot in. I I did photographs of my camera. I made the monochrome. I made them look like the film was going to look. I love it. So it makes I did perfect like a, sense. Yeah. I did a little. I did. A, I did like a slideshow of like this scene is in this location, then this setting, and then. Did you grade through. them as well? Did you add contrast? Yeah, sure, and, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so everything had the feeling, the metallic. You know, part of it was like you know the the, the you want the, the sky to look like it's made of hewn out of metal. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's going to be oppressive. Mm -hmm. um, everything in the world is oppressive now, and so you so. Yeah, it was this. It was again. There's almost a ritual way of you going through the process. It's funny, actually. I, I working with Sean Bean, he was very tired of. I, I tried to mix it up a little bit working with him um, because he was like, "Oh, you know, Jeff, it's a little boring when we do the wide shot and the mid shots and the close ups, and it just feels like." So I would go, "Well, let's just start with the mid shot." Let's mm -hmm. just we'll shoot the sure. rehearsal. We'll yeah, start yeah. with the mid shot, and we'll and yeah, we'll figure to shake out. Somebody if, sometimes you don't need the white interested. shot. You yeah. know, it's like you can you know you can live in mids and closes. It's depending yes. on the scene. But I yeah, yeah, you know I think shaking it up on set is a great thing to do. Um, obviously, in television, everybody use, likes to use a lot of cameras. Um, do you mm. prefer single cameras or or multi cam? 
like I'm okay know, with so. I'm okay with multi-camera because um, if it's single camera and there's so much design into it, then that, that's the best way to do it. With just one camera goes through, and I do and I do both, and I do interchange the two. I don't usually have more than three. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's an action sequence, there might be three cameras, but usually it's two. Um, I find tend to find because I am so driven also by light. Um, that the direction of the light is so important to me in terms of the image, the tonality of the image that I'm trying to capture. There are just not many positions you can get. Well, you're always on the dark side of the light when you shoot, aren't you? Can be, yeah. Um, If that, yeah, absolutely, mostly, yeah, absolutely. You're on the, you're you're on the, you're trying to get. I'm in a place where there's as much drama as possible and as much contrast as possible. Um, and as a result, you know, there's, there's, you know, only one 45 de- really good active degrees of, you know, that you can shoot from. But um, I just also prefer the discipline of not having too many cameras. Let's talk about some of your other experiences. Breaking Bad, mm. you yep. stepped into Breaking Bad as a guest director. How was that experience different to you than, uh, you know, some of your others? So I'm walking into Breaking Bad and the language is very clear and it's sitting there right in front of me i don't need to do any of that work it's already been done for me i i I can live within it i can breathe in it but as long as it's not restraining my breathing i'm good and in fact i'm really trying to be like a mouse i'm trying to be as quiet as i can yet still i remember michael slovis the dop on that who's brilliant looking at me going we're going to bring you over to the dark side of white princess I just can tell you're not happy with these white lenses. We're going to bring you over. You're going to love it by the end of this. And I'd never said anything. You just could tell. You just had this, you know. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, sure. I, there was a, there were, I remember the one production, Little Battle, Tiny Little Battle, that was uh, that waged on set between me and production was that I had this go-kart sequence that I was... I wanted to sh- that we were shooting with uh, with Jesse, with Aaron Paul's character, and I wanted to keep it on the same format. I wanted to shoot with film because the whole film, the whole thing, shot on film. I didn't want you to go in, go out of that reality and into a different one. Yeah, because it was there were so many different headspaces yeah. in that episode, and so they let me. It was actually Michelle McLaren who was brilliant. Uh, the brilliant Michelle McLaren, uh, the uh, producing director on that, really supported me, and she she talked them. They, the producers said no, and then she talked them into letting me have a, a little tiny um, thirty-five mil camera that we stuck on the front of this go kart. Yeah, because because um, Vince Vince was going to just shoot it with video because they shot a lot of little video camcordery stuff. And then, and then, and oh, and then there was a sequence with a security camera, which he wanted to shoot on the security camera. And I shot it on 35 mil, but he was right. The security, was, they, 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 we did it on, in the end. It ended up being on a little security camera. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, but the, but the go-kart sequence, I really wanted to shoot on film. And again, that was a thing where it wasn't in the script. And it was just me going like, the dream here is that rather than just sitting here dead, on this go kart because you've got all the money in the world. This character, it was the scene in the where mm-hmm. where where Jesse, you know, Aaron Paul's character, Jesse's kind of you know uh, just driving around on a go kart, dead to the world because that's what he's used to doing, mm-hmm. and he's got nowhere else to go, and he's just sitting there. 
And to Vince, I think it was just meant to be this solemn. And to me, I just like there's so much tension in him. And I'd been working with Aaron on a lot of scenes before that, and we'd been doing it relatively chronological. And I could tell there was this just this catharsis in there, ready to explode. And I said, "Well, just let it out a couple times. Just scream, yell, you know, mm-hmm. if it feels right." Yeah. And he did. And they used that. Yeah. <laughs> and just quickly, how was uh, Bandersnatch? How was that experience? Because obviously you shot many, many right. versions of that story. Good God, Bandersnatch in, 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 in 30 seconds or less. <laughs> um, good God. How many times do you think you you shot that story? Like, you know, did, was, did it amount to like three times the amount of work it, it would have been if it was it's a, a four and a half. It took four and a half hours to read the script. So if it was going to be... Okay. A one-hour show, which is what most Black Mirrors were, except for Metalhead, which was shorter. Um, then it's you know four and a half times as much footage. Right. We shot it in 30, 35 days, wow, um, which was very fast for for four and a half well, hours. Yeah, four and a half hour movie is what it was. Yeah. You know, yeah. and in fact, they sold it as a um, TV movie. Right, that's it. we won the Emmy for best TV movie. Yeah. Um, it was interesting because again, to me, it was a there was an obvious set of scaffolding that I had created through my own, you know, language and development to use that perhaps other people might not have used. And because we'd, I'd really got on really well with Charlie Brooker and Annabelle uh, Jones, and and they seemed to want to work with me again. So they called me about it almost probably a year before it came out to say, we've got this idea. We'd like to bring you in early. Nice. And just help with the development of it. And the, and, the, and I said no. It's a terrible idea. I don't. I don't think anybody should make an interactive television. You don't interact with television. That's a bad idea. Mm-hmm. And they said yes. We thought so too. But and then they told me the idea. And I, at that point, I was like, ah, I just have to do this because yeah. you know, it's again, it's that thing that makes me feel alive, which is doing something that excites me. And that's yeah. what you're always trying to do, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's the thing. At the end of the day, what you're trying to do when you make a film is make something that would excite you yeah that you haven't seen before yeah and that's why i keep changing things and that's why i keep doing the other thing and that's why i keep end up doing that's why i take all of these take these risks quite regularly is because what i'm trying to do is see something that i've never seen before my original pitch to charlie was not using any text at all which became impossible really mm-hmm. you know um but he did humor me and he did try and help me get there with it um in terms of this idea of a completely existential space where you react to images, not to Oh, words, so no text in questions. the questions. That's interesting, right? No yeah. text, yeah. Which was impossible. In the end, we, I tried to... We, well, no, you had the I, symbol. That was my idea. The symbol version was of that one moment, right? Yeah, yeah. there was a symbol. The, the, that stuff. But it was this idea that, oh, it's a new form. It is a new form. It's not a video game. It's not a... It is a really a new form. So, you know, I had the ability to influence the form of an entire genre yeah and so i wanted to really fucking do it i didn't want to do little bits or be uh coy about it i wanted to go big (laughs) you know so like one of the things that i said really early on was you know a lot of the lighting things were to do with bringing your attention to the form of it all and it took a while i think for um you know i think annabelle questioned me a lot and i i welcomed all those questions because um, I just, I didn't want to fuck it up. But, like, why are we doing it this way? Why are we, we just we make sure we're doing it right? Like, this whole thing where suddenly you would go into this altered state 
And I guess the way I would try and describe it is this. We're creating a world that is cyclical rather than linear. So if you go around it more than once, there has to be some residual memory of what happened before. If you're seeing this for the second time, there'll be a bit of deja vu. Mm -hmm. But if you're the character in it, it's still there, mm. but it can't work exactly like that. But there's a feeling, there's a something, there's something off or just something that brings your attention to you're doing this again. And that worked beautifully in the story, I felt. Is that and something so, you brought to it or is that challenge? Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, this That's idea that suddenly actually. the yeah. light would just fall off and change and set you in a different state because now there was an interface and now there was yeah. an outside force, you know, and it was literally the, yeah, you could choose, yeah, you know, and it was kind of spooky, actually. It was actually spooky because I knew I wanted to do all that stuff. And so, and like I say, Annabelle would be constantly questioning. She's brilliant at that, just making sure doing it the right way. And every time, I felt good about it because every time she's like, "Well, why are we turning? Why are the lights fading off now?" I, I would be able to explain exactly, and she'd be like, mm -hmm. "Okay, good, let's do it." And, but it became part of the form of it, you know. And, and mm -hmm. they used it, you know, in, right, and, it. and the yeah. and the and the and the, the fuse, the thing I called the fuse, which is the yeah, which was the thing that came out of a seven-hour meeting with me and Charlie Brooker and the producers and Annabelle and Russell McLean um, all sitting together figuring out the fuse thing. That I think they ended sound. up, Netflix ended up using the same thing later. Yeah, on, they used uh, it in yeah. a couple of things. Yeah. yeah. Well, again, we've, and I think Andy Wheel, who was the, Andy Whale, who's the guy at Netflix, uh, comedy largely, even though he just like Mirror, he, he usually does comedies, but he is the guy now in charge, well, always was in charge of the branching narrative part of Netflix he was really interested in that and I was really thankful that he was because they embraced it yeah. um, that you know it's a new form let's use that form it's not a video game we don't want it to feel like a video game and I'm not a video game player but Charlie Brooker is so I was often also the you know the voice of like mm, it feels a bit like a video game let's try and cinematically drive it away because we don't want it to be like that yeah. and and then there was also the I just really really encouraged Charlie to think about dreams and the existential aspects of someone losing their mind and memory versus invention and so there were a lot of these like flashbacks which were really possibly just fantasies that the young character of Stefan when he's a young boy has that were mm. all cinematically quite specific and we shot them all in a language again we used 16 mil for one thing and 35 mil for all of the um for all of this 1970s stuff. And we also had this thing where, like television at the time, because it really was like television at the time, um, because the big because the, the studio cameras were too heavy to carry around. If you watch an old show like Doctor Who, they'd shoot all of the stage stuff would be yeah. on video yeah, and yeah. all of the, the location stuff would be shot on 16 mil because the cameras were lighter. So we used those, that language was brought into it as well because it was certain. That's smart. I like that a lot. Yeah. As well. So we, so that, so we, so we had all of these different formats we were using, but they all had a very rigid language to win. So yeah. by the time, you know, we were shooting it, there was like, okay, it's very clear which, which format we use now, you know, we use this format for this, this format, and it has a meaning. Um, so yeah, it was it was um, it was it was a head fuck because, well, for instance, that whole thing about deja vu, 
is something you have to sit down and explain to the actors too, you know, and there's no language or there's no precedent for that. Yeah. So you just like, because we're going to shoot the scene four different times. Yeah. Now, it's also, we found quite quickly, I suspected it, but we found out quite quickly that it's not just coverage and then extra takes either. Can't mm-hmm. do it that way. It doesn't work that way. It feels very, very forced. And much to, to the great sh- chagrin of my first AD, what it meant was each scene had to be shot beginning to end each time, which means you couldn't just go, say you've got four different camera setups, shoot all of one setup for one scene and then bring them in and do another, do the same scene again from that mm-hmm. and then move over here and then you couldn't block shoot right. because there was a, again, there was a kind of emotional density that came with each scene that couldn't be broken away from. You yeah. couldn't block shoot. So yeah. if you block shot it, which would make it easier to shoot, it didn't work. It didn't did you, the magic. Did you make a decision early on whether to, if, if you were shooting, say, the B version of that scene, that you would keep the master shot in the same place or would you change the master yeah, shot? Yeah, somewhat. Or? We try it. I mean, look, you know, at a certain point, when you're shooting a five-hour movie in 35 days, or four-and-a-half-hour movie in 30... At a certain point, when you're shooting a four-and-a-half-hour movie in 35 days, there's just... you got, got to just figure yeah. out how to get it done. Yeah. Um, and I was trying to gear my process towards that, but sometimes, you, you know, you just were like, well, yeah, we can do this. And what it was, it was about disturbing the flow of the scene. If it didn't disturb the flow of the scene, great, we could do it. Yeah, you know. yeah. But what it never ended up happening sadly for our schedule because it just it took more time this way was that we could just block shoot you know emotional aspects we couldn't do any of that stuff you yeah i like, completely okay, get you just it say, yeah. add yeah. these lines to this it's essentially on paper it looks like the same scene yeah but it's not but it's all. not yeah it's totally different yeah, so we yeah. had to do that and that was a big eye-opener because everybody thought that it would be possible and I kind of suspected it wouldn't but was hoping it would be because again there was a reality of a number of pages so how, how did you a lot of seven page days on that so uh, how, on that uh, shoot that's a lot <laughs> how yes. did you get around that because obviously you go in with a schedule and you're like okay so we're going to shoot this scene in five hours and you know and then mm-hmm. suddenly yeah. if you if you can't block shoot it what was your yeah. way of getting out of that extra two hours or whatever it was that not you, a lot of coverage needed Right. Not a lot of coverage, just just very, very, you know, I wanted, I didn't want the camera doing backflips and fight club stuff anyway. It was, that wasn't, it wasn't like American Gods where yeah. the camera was doing insane things. It was very much about trying to make people believe this reality and stick with it, even though all of the things about reality are changing. And I knew I had this massive opportunity to go into an altered, massively altered state in the acid scene that I was going to do, Yeah, which would probably become pivotal to the whole piece, which it did. Yeah. So I was really confident in being quite simple with my camera and not doing a lot of takes and being able to move quite quickly that way. Yeah. Um, so that was it. Really. Well, I think that helped the storytelling quite... as well. It, yeah, I think yeah. so. I think it yeah. would have got to just too much. Um, yeah. I mean, like you know, there's the one scene where uh, where um, Colin Ripman spikes Stefan's tea. Yeah. Or 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 or, or encourages him to take acid, and that was the example of like, you know, that's a lot of different shots. And, yeah. And and I knew that I needed that too, and so you know we just. Each time my line producers came back to me asking me to cut that my shooting schedule on that scene down by a day, I kept saying, "No, you need that day. Yeah. We need that extra day there." You know, yeah. 
and and then finding a way to compromise that they were happy with that I was able to split it across different locations and and not fuck up the schedule too much and get the time I needed to shoot that scene by shooting other scenes a bit more succinctly. I think that's really smart. That's a that's, mm. yeah. I mean, obviously, if you'd tried to shoot that movie in the way you had American Gods. I think yeah. it would have been just been too overwhelming for the audience. No, also well. it's a, the British it's... culture was more polite too, which is something worth saying. Yeah, that and I prefer it. There was this. You know, we were shooting 10, 12 hour days rather than on American Gods. We were often shooting sixteen hour days, and it was it was right. merciless. And you know, the, you know, and and um, it just it, it, it was better to sprint a little rather than go for the marathon. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, jumping into our next part of the show, if you were to start at the beginning all over again, what would you do differently, if anything at Nothing all? Nothing at all. I believe in chaos theory that the mistakes you make bring you to where you are. Mm-hmm. And so had I made, had that fantasy situation of a director going back in time, meeting theirself and saying, look, now here's the, all the knowledge to make you jump 30 years, mm-hmm. um, I, I would end up with somewhere else and I wouldn't have had the journey I have. So I don't think that way. Mm-hmm. Could I tell my past self things? I think I can cheat a little bit and say, yeah, you know, um, the thing, the most important things to learn are human interaction, mm. <laughs> understanding, <laughs> communicating, not assuming that people understand you when they nod. Right. But just to make sure... If you can repeat back to them the thing yeah. you've told, they've told you, so that they know you understand it and those things. It's, it works in every every job in the world, but um, it's surprising to me if I look back how many things where I may just not have heard someone properly, or I may not have understood. Understanding is the thing you try and as the thing. Um, look, it's funny. It took me probably 10 years to learn things they teach you in film school in a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's the way I went about doing it. Yeah. No, I, I didn't go to film school. So, you know, like the, other, like the story I had earlier about, you know, I, I was looking up line theory the night before, you know, the first yeah. day of shooting on my first feature film because no one had ever said line theory to me and I didn't know the phrase. Yeah. Uh, but I had instinctively got myself to a place where I understood it because it just—it was just simple. I just had a different. I'd just come across it, and I'd absorbed it rather than read it out of a book. Yeah. Um, well, you did understand so, it because if you go back and look at some of your videos, you can tell that the characters are looking. Yeah, in the correct you understand it's, it's a screen direction thing. I you think just, that's like it, yeah. Does instinctively, it, you knew. You knew. Yeah, you, instinctively, you get there. But you yeah, know, uh, does you know do when you cut those two people together, do they look, do they look like they're looking at each other? That's mm-hmm. the easier way to kind of. To, to, to put it and I remember an editor once telling me that the hands are crossing the line I was like how can <laughs> <laughs> okay uh, <laughs> I disagree the hands are crossing the line <laughs> the hands are crossing the line you know and you're like oh god well, an editor well, told um, me early on I've, which I found um, which I, I, I've always used since and I see it used by a lot of, uh, of really good directors uh, I shot this one episode one of my first episodes of television and mm-hmm. we had about five 
probably had about five scenes that all took place in this one room. And of course, I wanted to be as photographic as I could. So I made sure I was on the dark side of the light and our actors mm -hmm. were sitting, you know, against and the light we were lighting through the window. And I shot every scene like that. And um, mm -hmm. The editor said, you know, Jeff, it's sometimes good to cross the line when you come back in to be on the other side of the line, just so mm. we have variety when yes, we yeah, can sure. come back into that That's scene. Great. So now what I try to do is if that were to happen again, every time you come back to that scene, I would try to be on the other side of the line unless right. it had some emotional resonance of why not to. You know. I see. That's really cool. I never heard of that. That's, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, that so makes sense. I, I thought yeah. that was fascinating. So I tried to do that, you know, yeah. or to use it for the story and, you know, try to motivate it. Uh, I've used I've used line crossings to specifically declare something. Yeah, I did it. Yeah. I remember this, uh, the the season one finale of Hannibal. There's a scene where Bedelia and, and and Hannibal are sitting at the table eating veal, and there's this moment where the subtext is, "I know who you what you are, mm -hmm. and you know that I know what you are." But we're admitting it, but I'm admitting it by not talking about it mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. And it just need it felt to me like it needed an extra bit of underlining. So then this one line on Julian Anderson, I completely changed the screen direction. I remember doing that kind of thing. Yeah. But usually I use leave that stuff alone because I'm looking for a I'm trying. I'm trying to find life rather than create an exclamation point, right? But yeah, right. But it, was, it makes sense though. If you like, particularly if you're on a flashback or something, and you're going to keep coming back to a scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. You know, Show different yeah, perspective. Makes, makes, that's a great. That's a really good idea. I'll steal that. <laughs> <laughs> so this takes us to our final part of the show. So any words of encouragement for aspiring directors um, trying to break yeah. into the industry today? Yeah, I would say this. Um, when you find the thing you love to do, then that thing can fuel your entire life. And so know that making films is one of the hardest things to do in the world. But like being a parent, it is also one of the most rewarding things. Mm -hmm. And so I would say the primary drive is one to listen to your heart quite literally because it'll have a feeling inside of it that'll make you feel alive and if you can keep that going somehow then then you're on the right path if you end up having to go down a path and you're presented choices where well you can get a bunch of other things but that little flame's going to go out for a while do not take that path now it's that doesn't mean don't Take money. Everybody has to take money. We need money. Uh, money is essential. We can't eat without money. But if you can listen to that little internal flame and follow it and make sure that's going, find a way. And there are other ways to find a way and take money as well. You, you have to find something that's going to interest you mm -hmm. and be exciting to you. If you can do that, then you're sorted. Yeah, you're all right. Yeah. But know that it's really, really difficult. And it takes, it doesn't happen immediately. Yeah. And it takes a lot of practice to get to that point when you can keep that flame alive. So if it goes out, it's up to you and no one else to bring that flame back. Yeah. That would be my advice That's to great anybody. Advice. Thank Work you. fucking yeah. hard. Know that. So the other thing is know that you can you can achieve anything doesn't matter where you came from. You can achieve anything at all if you're dedicated to working hard enough 
and overcoming the obstacles. And it sounds silly, um, but I'll tell you one little tiny anecdote which might be a good ending. So I was on set shooting Barkskin recently and I had a scene with a young actor who had to throw a knife and stick it face down in the ground. That's all they had to do. And the kid tried it, couldn't do it. I said, look, take this knife, take this pocket knife over there and just practice. Just do it over time. So he did that for a while and he couldn't do it. So I picked it up and I threw it, shoot, stuck in. And I gave it to my AD. I said, Jay, have a look. Try how to do it. He threw it, shoot, stuck in. And then so he went away again and he threw it again, didn't it? Bounced each time. I said, look, here's the thing. No one's ever told you this, but I'm going to tell you something. <laughs> if you believe that this blade is going to stick in the ground, it will. But you have to 100% believe it. If you don't believe it, if you've got doubt, it'll bounce every time. Now, just focus on it. Watch me. And I do it again. Shoot, sticks it. Give him the, give him the blade. She bounces here. Just, just keep going. And then I notice him over there was, was continuing to turn everything around. He's, it's sticking and he's getting it in there. And he's like, looking, this is great. He's throwing it in and it's sticking every time. So I go over to him. I go, how are you doing? He's like, great. It's working. It's working. I say, okay, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you something now. I wish someone had told me this when I was a kid. It doesn't just work for knives. It works for anything you can believe in, right? Anyway. So awesome. I came to the scene, came to the scene, got there, bounced every fucking time. He couldn't make it. We shot an insert. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lesson for life right there. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Didn't need it in the scene anyway. So throwing it out. Uh, just very quickly, um, you're about to start uh, a pilot with John Wells and you have a movie that you're um, yeah. about to so right on now, in Canada as well. There's a bunch of things going on. Right now I'm starting a thing called Red Bird Lane with uh, brilliant writer Sarah Gran, who I've known for 10 years because I was trying to her adapt her movie into a horror movie called Come Closer. And she got another gig and said, come and direct it. And I said, yes, please. It's just a pilot right now, but I think it's going to go to series and then... Dark Harvest, based on the um, um, novel of the same title, which is a nice little horror, uh, 1962 period monster movie. Uh, it's kind of like um, it's kind of like uh, The Outsiders with a monster. Nice, and that's um, 2021. You think that's going to? That's, that's next summer. Awesome. Probably in Canada uh, at this rate. At this rate, and that's what's on my dance card right now plus a bunch of other little things that aren't quite solid yet. And can people find you on social media, David? No. No, stay away from I mean, I'm that. trying to give up. Give yeah. it up. It's probably wise. I think, it's, it's I like think we're caffeine. all a little bit tired of social media right I just, now. Yeah, I don't want to doom scroll right now. Uh, yeah, I am. Um, you can find me on a couple places, but I don't. It's not a part of, big part of my life. I don't have a publicist or any of that stuff. All right. Well, listen, um, you've been an amazing guest for the show. Thanks, um, Incredibly Lovely inspiring and both yeah, sides. it was fun. So yeah. it was a lot of fun. Thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, mate. Awesome. Thank you. And that's the show. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can find me at jefftthomas.com or at jefftthomas on Twitter and Instagram. Remember 19th media.